very tempting idea to be able to look at a, a blank slate uh, and say, oh, let's adjust, we know we made mistakes here, let's just adjust these couple of things, let's change the ingredients just a little bit, uh, and we'll be able to make it work. And once we can see how that all works, uh, we can apply it somewhere else. This is Inside Asia, and I'm your host, Steve Stein. That was the voice of Gove Dupuy. He's a sustainability advocate and community-based planner. What's he talking about? Islands, and the growing idea that islands might serve as learning ecosystems for new ways of communing with the Earth we inhabit. It's not an entirely new idea. In 1962, legendary author Aldous Huxley wrote and published the book Island. It's a utopian companion to his better-known and more dystopian novel, Brave New World. Inspired by time spent in Bali, Huxley described a people living in harmony with nature. Today, there's a lot more traffic and a concerning amount of trash and plastic, but it's still Bali, an island where animism and Hinduism blend to create a unique pact between humans in rhythm with the environment. I sat with Gove by the banks of one of Bali's many picture-perfect rivers adjacent to the Five Elements Retreat. It proved the perfect setting to talk about life in Bali, community-based projects, and ultimately the promise of islands as a petri dish for exploring new, potentially more sustainable ways of living in the world. Amidst the thick, verdant jungle, cascading waterfalls, and buzzing birds and insects, it's hard to imagine we face a climate crisis of epic proportions. Yet we do. Gove has spent the better part of his professional life living and working in Bali. He's a sustainability consultant, project leader, and an advocate for biomimicry. More on that later in the program. But first, here's our conversation. Gove, uh, it's a pleasure. We've been trying to do this for a while, and now we're Riverside in Bali at the Five Elements Resort. I can't think of a better setting to have the conversation we're about to have. How about you? Absolutely. No, it's, it's a great spot. Five Elements is... Uh, been a long-term project for me, a place that I've spent a lot of time. There's a lot of thinking that's gone into it. Uh, and I can see a lot of that in front of me, including the next chapter, which is the new, the 11 new rooms that they're building, uh, which are in process right in front of us right now. Yeah, and hopefully we won't have the hammering and sawing in the middle of the conversation, but uh, at least there's the river to do its part. <laughs> yeah, and that's the other side of it, is that the river was really what inspired the owners to build here and has been a calming influence for the project the whole way along. So you, how long have you been in Bali? What brought you here? I first came in as an undergraduate student in 1997, coming from, I was at Lewis and Clark College in Portland, Oregon, in the US, uh, and had a great professor there who had been in Indonesia since the 50s. He had convinced me I needed to go to Indonesia. Uh, in the end, I didn't go with him. I was going to go on a trip with him, which was canceled, but I went with the School for International Training uh, out of Brattleboro, Vermont, um, and came here for a semester, absolutely fell in love with the place. I came because I wanted to go to sort of the most unmapped places in the world, uh, and the trip went to Bali, so I figured that was the first stop. Mm. Um, in the end, I traveled... Uh, over Sumatra, Flores, to Singapore, around a bunch of Indonesia, but didn't even get to the corner where I wanted to go, which was Papua New Guinea. Um, but it was clear that the area as a whole had hooked me after that first trip. And, and after coming for a semester, you were away, and then you came back permanently on a project. Tell us a little bit about that initial project. So uh, when I 
went back to school, finished school diligently, started working, uh, and sort of felt that I hadn't finished the experience here. Um, and over the next few years, I came back several times, actually, uh, working with a group called EDEP, Indonesian Development of Education for Permaculture, uh, doing little six-month projects. And then finally, in 2004, I felt like uh, every time I was, uh, had come, would come back to Indonesia, I was counting the time until I would go home. So I came in 2004 with the idea that I would give myself a year, uh, not buy the ticket, and just see what was happening after a year. Uh, within a year, I was involved in several different projects and wasn't even looking. And this, uh, your, your, your path since there, and I, I look at you as a bit of a sustainability wonk. Mm. How, you've, how's that feel? How's that title feel for you? <laughs> I guess wonk's as good a title yeah, as any. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> finding the exact, my exact title over the years uh, has been an interesting journey. And, you know, wonk is just one more that goes along with consultant, professional, planner, yeah. uh, landscape designer. Well, well that's it. You, you're integrated. So it's, it's the policy meets execution is what I see in the work you do. And, and maybe just to give the listeners an idea of some of your work, talk to us about the micro-hydro project that you were involved in a few years ago. And, and, and just, just give us a flavor for how you work. Um, so this particular project was based on, uh, I, I met up with a Chilean lawyer who was coming, he'd been working, uh, he was a forestry lawyer from Chile, uh, who had been working in Jakarta for a while. He showed up uh, at the NGO I was working at, at EDEP, saying he wanted to do uh, a village-based project. And it heard that EDEP was uh, well known for doing grassroots work. Um, and... Uh, I brought him up to a village uh, that I had been going to for a while after I'd been introduced to the village head by a friend of mine. Um, and in, within a day, we had hashed out a plan uh, for creating a microhydro. But the intention behind this uh, microhydro, uh, which for those who haven't heard the term before, it means basically uh, a way of making electricity from uh, smaller streams. And micro meaning less than 50 kilowatts. And, and I had the wonderful opportunity to walk that village with you in recent days and uh, just describe it for people. I mean, what, what, how is geographically or, or, or geologically, how is it oriented? Uh, the village of Sambayan is on the back side of Bali, on the north side of Bali. Uh, basically, from there are three lakes at the top uh, of the mountains on Bali, and then the backside drops down very quickly to the ocean. Uh, and it's a lot of the water from those lakes comes out in various springs, forming rivers, and it's just all waterfalls and forests on the backside, ending at Singaraja, the former capital of Bali, uh, and a former Dutch capital at one point, and was really the um, more prosperous side of Bali before the age of tourism. But this village was no electricity, no power, no utilities whatsoever. Uh, had they harnessed the power of water at any point, or was a micro-hydro project a new idea to them entirely? Well, what was so great about this village is the diversity. There are three different banjars, or community groups, within the village, uh, one of which was right on the edge of Singaraja, this major uh, city. Uh, and then the next one is sort of an agricultural banjar. And then the one we were working in was the highest one up on the mountain, which is where people were living the simplest lives. Uh, and the electricity had never made it to them uh, because they were not seen as a good bet 
uh, for the infrastructure because they probably wouldn't uh, have, there wouldn't be much revenue coming out of, of their electricity use. So a lot of people had actually created their own little micro hydros uh, or nano hydros as they're called. They'd be tiny little uh, hydro systems just out of old generators and uh, and belts from old engines and whatever they could find, pieces of wood. So, so enough to light a light bulb or charge a phone? Yes. Yeah. It, uh, and most of what they were using for was, was for lighting, uh, maybe for radios or something like that. Um, but these, uh, the thing that they were, the model they were using was an underslung water wheel, which is the single least efficient mode of, of uh, microhydro you can find. Yet, yet they, that's all they knew. Well, it's 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 sort of the one that makes the most sense. Uh, it's one that you know you stick a, it's you stick a paddle into the river as it's flowing by, and the river will turn the paddle, and you can turn the generator and create electricity. It makes sense. So, so you you enticed the headman into this idea. You found your village. It was, had the right set of conditions, and then you went about setting this up. But tell us a little bit about the process to get to the point where the village agreed to it. Well, the intention was this, my, my friend, uh, the lawyer, basically uh, had funding which he wanted to support a village-based project with. Uh, our intention was just to be a median towards what uh, this village group already wanted to do, uh, to support them with what they were doing. We brought a little bit of information, uh, some new designs for microhydros, uh, but in the end, it was their labor their uh, decisions on, on how the project went, as long as the funders were happy with uh, the decisions they were making. Um, and it was really, uh, it was about them developing their own, uh, their own path forward um, as much as possible. And, and this was in, in, in the, the parlance of infrastructure, a build, own, operate versus a build, own, and transfer kind of a, agreement where the village, if they got this right, would be able to manage their own power, not pay for it, and be happy in theory because of that. Yeah, and this is a, a model that was not strange to them. They had already been collecting their own water from the rivers coming down the mountain by gravity feed. Uh, they were already, especially in the third Banjar up, living a, uh, a subsistence life. Uh, this was a way of just adding in technology that would make it slightly more efficient. So, relatively simple idea, but it took time. Why did it take time? Well, decision-making in the village usually happens in a round, you know, uh, a roundtable sort of fashion where everybody sits around and discusses things. Uh, and oral discussion of a plan can take very different paths than uh, a critical thinking uh, using plans and materials uh, where everyone is sort of exactly on the same page. Um, certain, I would go, you know, I would go home after spending a day working with the village, meeting and everything, come back a week later, and it felt like everything had changed. The whole mindset of the place was completely different. It's because they'd been having discussions the whole time, and their, the direction of their project would go wherever their discussion had gone. So for you, it felt like too much talk, not enough firm planning and agreement. Uh, I think the talk was great to get everybody on board. Uh, what was different from what I was used to is that, you know, we would normally put a stake in the ground at a certain point and say, this has been decided, let's now move forward uh, and build off of a foundation. You lay a solid foundation, you go, 
uh, my experience was this was everything was up for grabs almost until the end of the project. So your friends had the funding, you had the know-how and engineering capability, you had resources and the village was on board. Why not just get it done? Why not just kind of push forward? You, you, you actually have a bit of a philosophy about how you work locally. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, my experience in working with EDEP and working within the, uh, the not-for-profit sphere is that um, there's a challenge involved in the funding cycle for not-for-profit projects uh, where exactly what I was just talking about, this critical method of making decisions, uh, putting a stake in the ground and moving forward, the reality is you're always going to keep learning in the process. The more you're involved in anything, you're going to learn more. Uh, and often, in order to please funders or to please... Uh, donors or a boss or somebody higher up the chain, you might end up having to make decisions you know are not correct. Uh, and seeing this happen uh, frustrated me a little bit, especially at the same time falling in love with Bali and seeing how well the villages themselves run, knowing that they must have most of the answers themselves. Just every now and again, there's one ingredient missing or a couple of ingredients missing. And, uh, you know, like a good chef, I guess knowing how few ingredients to use to do something well, my thought was at the time, this must be the best way to do things. And, and ultimately it came off. The hydro project went forward. They had their power. Uh, in fact, people were thrilled with the initial results. And then something happened. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, people were thrilled with the initial results. There was a big celebration. Uh, it was running for a while. In the end, a private company came in. Uh, with well, the, well, before that, what did people go out and buy? Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. As soon as, uh, as soon as it was finished, everyone was very excited, and most of them went out and bought television sets, <laughs> which was not the sort of idealistic uh, way we were thinking we were going to support the village. But after a lot of interviews, I really began to understand it. It was because the, the main reason people didn't uh, want it to be electrified, wanted their village to be electrified, is because they felt disconnected. Uh, and they felt a step behind. Uh, and television was the quickest way for them to feel that when the news hit everybody in the city, it hit them at the same time. Uh, and they could wake up in the morning and go to the warung and have a coffee and talk about whatever the issue was, and they felt connected to everything. So that, to me, makes sense, despite uh, the fact that having given a bunch of people living beautiful, healthy lives, television didn't seem like the best way to move forward. It had its reasoning. So, so here's the rub. You take modern uh, concepts, engineering techniques and design, and you introduce them to uh, communities that have been operating relatively effectively for thousands of years, and you're going to you know, have uh, moments of uncertainty. And, and, and in this modern push towards sustainability, where everybody is trying to, in some ways, recapture some of those traditional ways of living and operating, there is a bit of a, of a, of a crosshair here between where the modern and the traditional worlds meet. Mm -hmm. How have you tried to apply some of your thinking about sustainability and the context of Bali and these kinds of projects you work in? Where do we need to push and where do we need to be patient? Uh, really good question. I think that's a lot of what we're trying to figure out right now. I have, uh, having grown up in rural Vermont, I already have an ingrained sort of belief that simple ways work. Um, and, uh, but I also, you know, realize that that life can be tough. I think what can be difficult sometimes, people are willing to idealize 
a simple life, especially if they're living a jet set life, uh, flying around in airplanes and making deals and that sort of thing. Uh, and then they come and say, oh, it'll be great. We'll just uh, support these people to stay like they have been for several hundred years. Um, you got to know that, number one, it can be tough. It doesn't always work. Things don't always work out exactly the way you want. And I think most of what people living those lifestyles want is not so much for that lifestyle to change, but more certainty. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really what, uh, what is helpful in that lifestyle is to know we're not going to have crops wiped out. You know, our uh, electricity system is going to be working when we need it. Um, we're going to be able to have uh, the, the weather we want, the food that we want to be eating at the right time. More certainty in all of those different things. I'm going to be able to send my kids to school. Uh, all those sorts of ideas. Yeah, risk mitigation. That's exactly what it is. This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to my conversation with Gove Dupuy, sustainability wonk, naturalist, and staunch advocate for community-driven development projects. We've been discussing the nuances and challenges of grassroots development and speaking specifically about Gove's first-hand experience working with rural and remote communities in Bali. When we come back, a broader look at sustainability efforts using islands as a petri dish for testing new ideas, technology, and programs. Back in a moment. You're listening to Inside Asia, and I'm in conversation with Gove Dupuy, sustainability advocate and community-based project leader. In the second half of our discussion, we contemplate the role that islands might play in the development of new sustainability models for a world in crisis. Let's get back to our conversation. So if you take uh, where we are now, I mean, lo let's look around. We, we live on an island. Bali's an island. I've lived more than half my life on islands. I, Singapore is an island. Hong Kong was an island. Uh, I, I'm very familiar with them, but these are highly developed islands, at least Singapore and Hong Kong are. A lot hasn't gone well. Urbanization has created a lot of uh, new problems that we didn't occur before. But there seems to be this, this growing fascination with, you know, if we could do it again, what would it look like? Where would we go? How would we take... What, what nature offers us, rethink it um, in, with a different framework, and then be able to go in and apply some of the technologies and thinking in order to perhaps second time around get it right. Does that seem like a reasonable approach? And are you aware of anybody uh, doing that in an island context? I think it's a very, it's a long-standing popular idea and becoming more and more popular as people start to feel uh, we might have made a mistake with the island of Earth. Um, if you know, it's it's a very tempting idea to be able to look at a, a blank slate uh, and say, oh, let's adjust. We know we made mistakes here. Let's just adjust these couple of things. Let's change the ingredients just a little bit, uh, and we'll be able to make it work. And once we can see how that all works, uh, we can apply it somewhere else. So yes, I think it's a very popular idea right now. From uh, the idea we hear different billionaires talking about buying their islands and creating utopian societies. Um, and that's happening. In fact, not, not just billionaires building it for themselves, but also a lot of high net worth individuals looking for things beyond the five or six star resort. They want exclusivity at a new level. But is that necessarily the best use? I, I don't know. I guess it's what example are you trying to set? How are you using those resources? And can something be demonstrated that actually provides a uh, greater insight or new innovation or new ways of managing environment in ways that we haven't thought. I, and I think 
the main thing about looking at an island is the idea of control. Uh, it's like a laboratory for that reason. You can control the various inputs that are going on, and you can say, look, I have this hypothesis, and I'm pretty sure I can make it work. Uh, and this island is the one place I'm going to be able to figure that out. Otherwise, if I have to do it in the middle of the rest of this mess, then who knows what's going to affect it. Petri dish. Yes, a piece of So you have a, uh, a couple projects that are starting to um, show some progress. One is in Hainan Island mm -hmm. in China. Tell us a little bit about that, what's interesting about it, and where you see some hope and possibility. Uh, well, I should definitely say that I'm not directly involved in these projects yet, but have been sort of uh, begun talks with people. Uh, and I'm definitely seeing this theme of people wanting to work on islands and come up with new ideas. So the one in Hainan uh, is a particular um, fellow who's done very well for himself in China uh, in the real estate market uh, who made uh, a deal for a particular area in Hainan which is not in the main tourism district. It's not in Sanya. Uh, it's not right down on the beach where everybody's building five-star hotels. It's a little bit outside of that. Um, and his uh, thought in, in, in uh, getting control of this area was that it was a perfect place to build a new lifestyle. Uh, he's somebody who did very well for himself in a time when China was developing economically, but I think a lot of uh, these middle class and upper middle class wealthy Chinese are lamenting the loss uh, of what has disappeared in the past 50 or 100 years as well as uh, you know, alongside the new uh, economic success. So this is a passion project for him, not something looking for the highest possible rate of return. Absolutely. Uh, he's already been working on it for about 10 years uh, and has been in a long, sort of prolonged analysis stage uh, of looking at what's possible, making relationships with uh, the local inhabitants, uh, beginning to understand various bits and pieces. But He's just now beginning a three-year uh, stage of the project, which will be sort of the beginning development, which will include uh, a school, uh, will include accommodations for guests to come and stay, further development of agriculture. Um, yeah. It, is it taking what's already there and uh, optimizing it, or is it simply walking in with new approaches or new projects to augment what exists in a way that uh, may be unfamiliar to the local community? I think what it is is realizing, after li having lived a very busy life in the cities uh, and run around, uh, done very well uh, financially, realizing what's missing from that lifestyle. When you go back to a small agricultural village, you know, I think a lot of people feel a sense of calm. Uh, and the big question is, what is that? Uh, some people look at it through a lens of sustainability of, oh, well, there's this, there's something sustainable about that lifestyle. Uh, and we all miss it. Other people will talk about biophilia uh, and the idea that human beings are just naturally attached to nature. And if we don't have it for a while, we will miss it. Uh, so it's basically seeing that that still exists and wanting to bring it forward knowing that the people living that lifestyle, they're not 100% satisfied with, their, with what they're doing to the point where they say, just stay away. This is not Shangri-La. Everybody wants to move forward, uh, but maybe they could move forward in a different way than the rest of the world has. So is the ultimate plan to create a, a pilot project 
that he can then demonstrate there is a better way or a more uh, nature-based way to live without surrendering the kinds of things you might experience in a large city with lots of, lots of activity and connectivity. Absolutely. It's, it's about modeling uh, a lifestyle, which is entirely possible in this day and age, uh, which doesn't require um, sort of the frenetic lifestyle that, that a lot of us know these days, hopping onto planes, going to meetings. Uh, and one of the things is the food that you end up eating doing that is sort of what's offered you by large companies that aren't necessarily thinking about your lifestyle and your health, but about their bottom line. So this is sustainability writ large. We're talking about the entire body, the mm -hmm. physical engagement with nature, everything that makes us healthy, happy, and joy-based. Absolutely. And it's, he's looking very much at traditional Chinese values, at the modern wellness uh, industry, uh, and about how to really uh, wrap this all together and come up with a structure that is somewhat re repeatable and teachable. Mm. These are, uh, these are important times. There's a sense of urgency, isn't there, Gove? Because uh, we all know the climate change reports are suggesting eight to 30 years we may be faced with uh, you know, the type of climate crisis or environmental crisis we've never experienced before. So w these experiments are well and good. Uh, Small-based, uh, you know, very surgical. As you just mentioned, this one has been brewing for about 10 years. But it almost uh, feels to me, without being overly negative, too little, too late. What's your thought about that? Uh, I think that you just can't really think like that. Mm. Uh, I'll stop then. <laughs> it's to me that's uh, there's just nothing positive about that thought pattern. Yeah. There's okay. Well, thanks. I've been put <laughs> in my place. I feel much better. So let's talk about Turtle Island. Uh -huh. Tell us about some of the thinking that's going on about this island. Uh, well, this is an island which is based on a Balinese philosophy. The entire project is based on a Balinese philosophy, which is similar to the one uh, which drove the Five Elements project here. Uh, the philosophy of Trihitakarana, uh, and they've sort of... Uh, translate that. Trihitakarana? Yeah. I can't actually translate the direct words, but it's based, It's three paths to contentment. Um, so it's the idea that uh, to have a, a balanced life, uh, we all need to be looking at our relationship with uh, the environment, our relationship human to human uh, with the society around us, and our relationship to God or some sort of creative energy. Uh, the Turtle Island folks, the Kura Kura Island folks, have translated that as creativity, basically. A lot of it is based around incubation. Uh, it's based around the idea that if, uh, it's been said many times that all the technologies we need to live a sustainable lifestyle around the world are here. It's just a question of implementing them uh, and giving everybody what they need to move forward. The intention of this place is to be a living space, a working space, uh, and an incubation and education hub where people can come together and develop these ideas. Uh, and Bali being such a major international hotspot around the world, it has the power to draw in people from everywhere, uh, sort of to draw in the best of the best. Um, to uh, work on these ideas. And if a particular uh, technology has, you know, is great on the scientific side, but maybe their marketing isn't so fantastic, to put the right people together uh, to make all of these move forward. And the intention is that the island of Bali is such a beautiful, calming influence on a lot of people that, and creative influence on a lot of the people that come here, uh, that this sort of added ingredient will make it a little bit different from any of the incubation hubs you find anywhere else. Are there others around the world? 
I think this is a very popular idea right now, which is happening all over the place. I mean, you can look at the co-working uh, movement that's going on. Um, the reality that uh, the direct sort of working for a major company and being a company man or a woman for life is not the most productive method uh, of getting your ideas across, of uh, you know, getting done what, what you're capable of doing. There are other ways of mixing people together uh, to be more productive and more creative. Uh, are, are people who are thinking of islands this way uh, giving up on what we have? In other words, it's easier to start again someplace else where we have, uh, if you will, clean slate versus trying to unwind what's already been done in order to build back. In other words, is it like Elon Musk wanting, going, wanting to go to Mars? Are, are we, are, is this a, a statement of surrender? I certainly hope not. Um, as I said, I think the only way you can only think positively, and that's the only way we will get to where we want to go, is is looking for the positive way through it. I think that the island is a very attractive option uh, because it allows for more control. As I was saying before, I, and I really think a lot will come out of these type of projects. There will be a lot of interesting information. What uh, being uh, somebody who's sort of uh, subscribe to sustainability ideas i don't think they will be the end all and be all because the single ingredient that's necessary for a sort of stasis where everything continues to work is diversity uh, and the idea behind the island is removing a bit of the diversity in order to get to where you want to go but at some point you have to put those new ideas into a larger system and make sure they thrive on their own but, but the idea is once you have those models in place and you can demonstrate them at a micro level, the idea is to scale them uh, in, in areas that are more diverse. And then, of course, uh, you've been mentioned before then all the, 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 the surrounding or circuitous aspects of what sustainability needs have to come into play. And this is master plan, if you will, is something that nobody really has because no matter what you do, it's going to interfere or impede with somebody's vested interest somewhere. It could be landowners. It could be industrialists. It could be President Trump's. People have different agendas in different places. Again, it feels like you go to someplace, small habitation, uh, you know, great natural resources, water, wind, air. You've got what you need. But, but the application is really where the rubber hits the road. Absolutely. Um, and there are always going to be factors that can't be foreseen. Uh, the really strong projects are going to be the ones that can weather uh, whatever comes at them yeah. that have that's really what people go beyond sustainability these days to talk about uh, the next term is resilience mm. which adds in that extra factor you're going from sustainability of just barely making it to uh, the planned objectives whatever they are okay we we've ticked the boxes to resilience which is the space where you can handle the next hurricane you can handle the public uprising uh, the systems will will stretch a little bit when they need to uh, because the reality is that's the way the world works. We're always going to have changing dynamics. Let me ask you something else. If, if there's all this wellspring of good intentions and lots of experimentation and desire to experiment, um, it really is at the end of the day about scaling. So with that in mind, what's missing? What's needed to take this to the next level? I think the major thing that's missing is new methods of working, uh, is that we're very used to a lot of the old patterns uh, and we'll fall into it very quickly. Somebody gets a good idea and they jump into a startup, uh, start looking for funding and then become beholden to that funder to some degree. 
uh, looking at new ways, more flexible ways of working, um, in that maybe something like what we were trying to do in the village uh, of looking at really just what is needed for the individual project uh, and not trying to cram it into an old pattern. And I think these new, uh, these new methods, there's a lot of ideas around them. They need to become more commonplace and we need to be clear about which ones really are working very well, which ones not as well, and why. Um, uh, when you'll start to see a lot more progress in a lot of these areas. Because as we were saying at one point before, uh, the capital is there, the technologies are there, uh, the intention is definitely there. Uh, it's really a question of people understanding how to work with each other. And I think what that really represents is a new culture. Um, in Bali, you see how strong a traditional culture is. Uh, but it's become clear that a lot of world cultures are ready for a new iteration, new adaptation. This is not wiping out what's been learned and starting with something else, but uh, bringing things into another uh, another age. So, so I, I hear a few things in there. One is a, a, a new method of collaboration. So the way that people share ideas without owning or possessing or being possessive of ideas. Mm -hmm. I also heard you say perhaps open platform instead of IP. So, you know, that's mine. I own it and you can't use it without licensing it. I mean, it's almost like, again, what Musk is doing in China, open platform. The Chinese mm -hmm. are taking full advantage of that and mm -hmm. probably jumping, leapfrogging ahead of where we'll be in the West yeah. because uh, he has made it available because his idea is to solve a bigger problem, mm -hmm. not sell more cars. You're suggesting that these things need to converge. So it's a rethink about our entire economic model is what you're suggesting. How viable is that? A good question. Uh, but having a belief, I mean, the most sustainable systems we see are natural systems. So looking at biomimicry ideas uh, and how we can how we can sort of take learn a bit from what nature has already done. Uh, Nature does not have a particular path that it follows. It's open to whatever comes along. A forest can grow up slowly and then lightning strikes and rips out one part of it. That's an opportunity to a forest and it should be an opportunity to uh, our business and intellectual and cultural world as well. Uh, when things stop working, it's time for something else to come in. You know, you raise a really interesting point, Gove, which is um, the Earth is a massive organism. It's living, breathing, interrelated, interconnected. And, you know, for thousands of years as human beings, we learned, watched, and applied because of that. It seems like our empirical period, empirical phase in our, in our history has uh, almost forced us to create barriers to that idea in order to, instead of uh, conspire with nature, uh, to own or control nature. And in doing that, I think we've missed the point in some ways. W would you agree with that? I would completely agree with that. And I think it was sort of, it was a functional model uh, when we were a small enough force uh, that we were still, we still felt we couldn't do any permanent damage. And it was sort of our continuous struggle to survive in nature. We're a significant force on this planet now. Uh, and if we're not coming into a more cooperative model, uh, we're going to find ourselves alone in the room, so to speak. Gove, uh, love what you're doing. Great insights about uh, what we could do and how we could do it better. Thank you so much for spending time today. Thanks for uh, sitting down with me. It was nice to talk to you. That was my conversation with Gove Dupuy. 
sustainability advocate, project leader, and advocate for a more sustainable way of living. So it is in this week's Asia Insider Minute that we take a look at the island experiment. Here's the question. Should islands be seen as a means of escape for a planet laid to waste, or do they hold for us the seeds of biomimicry? What do I mean by biomimicry? Well, according to the institution by the same name, biomimicry is, and I quote, an approach to innovation that seeks sustainable solutions to human challenges. Nice idea, right? There's nothing really new about it. How Orville and Wilbur Wright studied birds in their quest to build a flying machine is the thing of legends. In fact, for thousands of years, human beings survived and thrived by observing nature and learning from it. Sadly, and somewhat ironically, our tilt to science these past few centuries has led us astray. Perhaps it takes a pending environmental crisis to draw us back to what's most important. Like a love relationship, you hurt the one you love most. There's no question we put a hurting on the earth we inhabit, and so it is for a small subset of conscientious humans, environmental engineers, and social psychologists that we begin to rediscover what nature offers us. Island destinations are the perfect petri dish, particularly on islands where ecosystems have thrived undisturbed for thousands if not millions of years. We have two choices. The first choice is to bulldoze and build six-star resorts for the wealthy or military installations for the paranoid, because that's exactly what China is doing in the South China Sea. The second choice is to establish a network of island ventures that attract the best and brightest from all scientific and social disciplines, with a mission to learn from nature and learn to live in harmony with it. Is this a utopian bridge too far in a world consumed by greed and power? Gove Depoy doesn't think so. In fact, it is during our conversation that he reminds me that nothing good can come from pessimism, or stinking thinking, as my wife likes to say. So let the great island experiment begin. We have to believe that it's never too late. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Inside Asia. If you don't have time to listen but want to stay connected to many of the ideas and themes presented by our guests, please subscribe to the Inside Asia newsletter. We track Asia in transition and each week deliver new insights, point you to reliable resources, and showcase episodes on related topics. To subscribe, go to www.insideasiaadvisors.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, fill in your name and email, and start receiving our weekly update. Is there a topic we haven't covered? Let us know. To subscribe and download any or all of our episodes, visit Inside Asia at iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or comment and rate the program on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Until next week, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia.